I say we just close in prayer right there. I mean, that was solid work. Now, when Michael Cork is sweating, you know you're in trouble. Hi, everybody. Oh, my goodness, you're fanning, all of you. Uh, evidently, we have a theological problem with air conditioning, and uh, we're just opposed to it. I don't know. Uh, we want to welcome you. My name is Mike. We are so glad that you are with us. If you're new to our church, uh, we want to extend a special welcome to you and say thank you for being here. I also want to say thank you for the many of you who have emailed us or called us or gotten in touch with us. Uh, just as we've been in the journey of three months waiting for you as you've been waiting for us and have just expressed the fact that you were praying and that you were excited. And so, hallelujah, we are so glad to be here with you today. Now, uh, they, they asked me what I would want to do uh, for a first weekend, and uh, I said I'd like to roast. And they said, fantastic. And the second thing, the second thing they said, no, no, they, they said, hey, what would you want to do? And I said, I would be honored to kind of my first um, weekend in the community to celebrate the Lord's Supper with you. And so we're going to end our service by taking communion together. Uh, but consider this about a 25-minute intro to communion. Grab a Bible. Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the Scriptures up on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians, we will start in chapter 15. My wife and I... I mean, this is a big Sunday. Can we agree? This is a big Sunday. It is the NFL season. It kicks off today. It is a big Sunday. First Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we want to spend a little time in God's Word, and then we're going to respond by taking communion together. So Paul, a missionary in the first century, writes this to a church he founded. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Now, in the context of the letter, it, it becomes very, very uh, critical to understand why Paul waits to kind of level his major argument. What, what's going on is this is a church full of division and controversy. And he uh, starts engaging them towards the end of his letter to them. And I want you to notice, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. Now, the word gospel there didn't mean the Christian message in the first century. It came to mean that. But originally, it was a word that was used by the Roman Empire to announce Roman success. So, so for instance, the gospel was used when um, Caesar had an heir. So there would be a gospel announcement. The word gospel just means an announcement about something important, about something good. And so there was a gospel of, of Caesar Augustus and his birth. There was a gospel when Caesar would win a victorious battle. There was a gospel, an announcement, a herald about news of the empire whenever something big happened. The early church co-opted that word and said, no, 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 that's not good news. I'll show you good news. Good news is Jesus of Nazareth. 
And so the word gospel was used in the early Christian community in reference to the good news about the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of this Jesus. And in fact, it's interesting, Paul, Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached. The word preached in, in my Bible is actually a form of the word gospel. So what Paul's saying is, I want to remind you of the gospel I gospeled you with. So the announcement I announced to you, I want to remind you of this. And it's so important that if you believe this and live this, you are saved by it. Otherwise, you believed in vain. Now, notice verse 3. Paul uses, it doesn't feel like much in English, but Paul uses a couple of important words when he says, for I received, for what I received, I passed on to you. Now, this in English, like I said, sounds okay, great, but it's significant because Paul is using language there for the passing on of an authoritative tradition. In other words, Paul, other places, makes a really big deal about how Jesus himself met with Paul and instructed him. But in this case, he brings forward something that didn't... Bless you! In this case, he brings forward something that did not originate with him. In other words, Paul now... And and, and what follows is almost universally agreed. What follows is one of the earliest Christian creeds or declarations of faith. Some scholars date it within two or three years of Jesus' resurrection. That the earliest apostles, the earliest church, encapsulated the life, the death, the ministry, the importance of Jesus of Nazareth in the earliest creed we have. And so Paul says, listen, we've talked about a whole lot of things, but I want to remind you of the good news. That I good newsed you with. And that is this. That Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose. And then Jesus appeared. Now, the reason it's important in context is because there were people who believed that there was no resurrection, no physical resurrection of the dead. And so, Paul uses this ancient creed to say, no, 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 Jesus died a physical death. His physical body was buried. His physical resurrection was attested because He physically appeared to people. And He says, this is a first importance. Now, I want to zero in on that phrase. Of all the things that Paul talks about, if you're new to the Bible, uh, often what will happen, at least in the, in the New Testament section of books, is that you will have pastors writing to churches. And, and this church was a bit screwy back in the first century. I know it will shock you that churches aren't perfect, but this church was a bit of a mess. And, and so what Paul does is he says, I'm, I'm going to pass, I'm going to remind you of what I myself received and passed on. And this, he says, is of first importance, which means what? Everything else is second. And I want to remind you of the everything else. I mean, don't flip there, but like when you begin in 1 Corinthians, Paul immediately has to address a church that's playing favorites. It's divided according to their preferences about human personality. I know this is shocking. I know this doesn't happen today. But back then, people had like their pastoral favorites. Right? So so you had some people. Now listen, 
I need some sort of response besides the waving of your, like your guys are waving in surrender. So just, even if it's like close to being funny, just give me something that looks like life. Alright, so you had some people in this church. Man, I'm a fan of Paul. I mean, Paul planted the church, right? He brought me to Jesus. I'm a fan of Paul. You had other people that were like, no, 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 no. I'm a huge fan of Peter. I mean, Peter walked with Jesus. Like, you don't hear Paul quoted in the Gospels. You hear Peter quoted in the Gospels, right? So I'm a fan of Peter. And then you had other people going, no, 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 no. You guys are all losers because there's this guy named Apollos. And man, can that guy teach. Wow. And so you had, I know, I know it's mind-blowing, but you had a church that was divided over different personalities. So he starts with that. And then he has to start addressing, this was a church that was way more immature than they thought. They thought they were all sophisticated and they were in love with wisdom and rhetoric. And now Jesus, or excuse me, now Paul's going to have to deconstruct the wisdom of Jesus is different from the wisdom of the world. And then he gets into, he gets into crazy stuff. There's some sexual sin going on in the community that, that is so scandalous. Paul says even pagans don't put up with it. And then he talks about that for a while. He talks about how the brothers and sisters of the church are suing each other. Some are sleeping with prostitutes. And so he talks about sexual immorality. And then he talks about what it means to be married and what it means to be single and what it means now to live as a Christian in a pagan society. Evidently, back in the day, you would offer food, you would have sacrifices, you would offer to pagan gods. And if they weren't consumed as food by the priests of that cult, they would sell the meat to the marketplaces. And so the Christians wondered, can we buy the meat that had been offered to pagan gods in worship? And so Paul gets into that. I mean, it's an important theological question. And then, and then they had people getting drunk in communion. So he, he deals with that. And then, um, and then he, and then they have some crazy spiritual gift stuff that's going on. And so he spends four chapters on the work of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. But none of that is of first importance. Right? When Paul ends, by saying, Jesus came, Jesus died, He was buried, He's risen again, and He's appeared. And that is of first importance. That means everything till then has been of second importance. Now, do you see the significance of that? Now, that doesn't mean it's not important. He wouldn't have wasted 15 chapters on stuff that wasn't important. But it wasn't a first importance. In other words... I mean, think about, look at the people around you. They look funny. Can you imagine that there are people here who believe that, that, that the spiritual gifts are all operative today, and they're sitting next to people who believe that certain of the spiritual gifts actually are no longer needed once the Scriptures were written. And they would disagree with each other if they got in a conversation. But is that, is that of first importance? Now, I know we know that, but do we really believe it? I mean, there's someone here who believes that Jesus is a Republican. <laughs> and there are some equally convinced that Jesus is a Democrat. And then there are other of us that believe that Jesus wouldn't care. Right? And we would all disagree with each other. And is it important? Yes. But is it a first importance? It is not. Some of us would have different views of what the Lord's Supper is and means. Some of us would have different views of how many times you should be dunked in the water when you're baptized. We would have different views on what the book of Revelation is and what it suggests. We would have different views on whether it was six real days or eons that God used to 
create the universe, right? And all of those things matter and they're important, but none of them are of first importance. Jesus, His work, His life, His death, His resurrection, that's the only thing of first importance. And that is what you can build a church on. So after he deals with sexual sin and crazy theology and the abuse of spiritual gifts and people getting drunk in communion, he says, I want to remind you of what is first. And what is first is this Jesus. And who he is and what he's done. And that's it. All the other stuff matters. Absolutely. I mean, there are some people who believe that you should wear colorful shirts while others of us are convinced that black is slimming. And Paul would say, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. It is not of first importance. Right? I mean, there is a sense. Wouldn't you agree with this? Would you agree that there is a sense in which, at times, the church has excelled at making secondary things of first importance? Would you agree with that? I think we, we, we're pretty good at that. Because it's easy to miss Jesus or water him down right in the middle of his religion. It's easy to miss Jesus right in the middle of church. I mean, the people of God have always had to guard missing God's work because they predefine what it's going to be. Right? It's easy. I mean, go, go if you would, go to John chapter 5. These are just passages that so convict me. Jesus is in trouble again. And he's in trouble with the religious leaders. And he says something here that I think is fascinating. John 3, excuse me, John 5, verse 39. Notice what he says. These are people who had memorized the Hebrew Scriptures. These are people who knew the Old Testament inside and out. And he says to to them this. You study the Scriptures diligently... Because you think, now when he says the Scriptures, it's the Old Testament. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me about life. So was it possible for people who loved God back then to miss Jesus? Even in the reading of their Scriptures? Evidently. Go if you were to the book of Luke. And when you go to the book of Luke, you have to say it the right way. We're a family. It's just, it happens the first day. It's kind of like an arranged marriage today. I mean, I've kind of sensed as I've been talking with people that people were kind of nervous. It's like, this guy was okay for two weeks and, you know, we said good and, and now we're going to see what he's really like. You know, and, and, and he's, he's still the same dorky guy that was here in June. And so I don't know if you're happy about that or disappointed, but, um, and you're still the same hot church. <laughs> so now we're family, ladies and gentlemen. It is an arranged marriage and it is awesome. And you said Luke. Now, I've always wanted, did I tell you this? I always wanted to name my child Luke so I could just walk around going, Luke, I'm your father. Luke, I'm your father. All right, Luke 19, verse 41. As Jesus approached, sorry, I'll wait. It's tough to fan and turn and pay attention all at once. I understand. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. If you, he said, 
if even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come, and he's talking about when Jerusalem will be destroyed by the Romans. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you, notice this phrase, did not recognize the time of God's coming. Now these were people who for generations have been crying out to God to come, deliver them. And Jesus weeps over them because the people who wanted God's deliverance had already decided what form that deliverance would take. And so they missed Him. It is possible for the people of God to lose Jesus right in the midst of all the stuff they're doing in His name. One more example. Go to Luke chapter 9. Isn't it great that the disciples were pretty clueless? I mean, doesn't it give you a bit of hope? That they, you know, they've just seen Jesus do miraculous stuff and they're like, okay, which one of us gets to sit next to him? You know, when he like, like does his full Jesus thing. I mean, it's just, they're just, it gives me hope that they were so ridiculous sometimes. This is one of those instances. I love this. Luke 9, 49. Master, said John. My arms are sweating. Master, said John. Notice this. We saw someone driving out demons in your name. Now, 11 o'clock, may I ask you a question? Can we agree that fewer demons is better? Can we just agree as a general principle of life, the less demons, the better, right? Okay, so driving demons out is a good thing. Would you agree? Yes. But notice the response of the disciples. Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he is not one of us. I mean, Jesus, I mean, your work is just confined to us, right? I mean, we got, we, we've got you hemmed in. We got you nailed, right? It's just us, right? And Jesus goes, uh, do not stop him. I mean, can you imagine the tone of our Messiah? Do not stop him for whoever is not against you is for you. In other words, you're worried because these guys aren't on the right team. I'm telling you the team just got bigger. How many times in church history have we had this conversation? Well, no, 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 they're not one of us. And certainly there are times you, you need to have it. But I just want to suggest this morning, it is very, very easy for us to make things that are not of first importance, of first importance in the way that we think, believe, and live. And it's been the temptation of the people of God, even in Jesus' day. He says, listen, you're reading the Bible that talks about me, and here I am. And you do not recognize me. He weeps over the city that had been praying for God's presence to come again in power, and Jesus is going, here I am, but because I'm on a donkey, you don't recognize me. And Jesus is doing such powerful work, but the disciples say, no, 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 he wasn't one of the authorized representatives. And Jesus says, no, no, the team just is bigger than you know. It has always been the temptation of us to let what is secondary drift into what should only be primary, right? The only thing that should be primary is this Jesus. But thankfully, we're not left on our own in this. Go back to 1 Corinthians and go to chapter 11. There's an important connection. Paul uses, remember, Paul uses a phrase 
that says, for what I received, I passed on to you. Remember this left section? I shall turn my back on the left section. Okay, remember that whole, like, before he quotes the apostolic tradition, he says, for I receive, for what I received, I passed on to you. Remember that? It was like ten minutes ago. Okay. Just, just playing. He uses, and this is a technical phrase, he uses it one other place in 1 Corinthians. And it's in 1 Corinthians 11, which means twice in this letter, he's quoting tradition that originated not from him. And he's doing it in two really important spots. So the first spot is about the resurrection. The second spot is about the Lord's Supper. Go, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Notice this phrase. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. Right? Does that sound familiar? It's just what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the same phrase. For I received what I passed on. And then he quotes this. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He'd given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of Me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Which is an interesting way of putting it, right? Not very often do we proclaim someone's death until they show up. Right? Maybe Elvis is the only other one we do this with. (laughs) Right? It's a little odd, just put it that way. But, But here's the idea. I received what I passed on. And He gives the tradition, the institution, something we call communion, the Lord's Supper. And He does it for the sake of something he calls remembrance. Now, would you agree that you and I are pretty forgetful people? Yeah, I think that's true. And one of the reasons, as part of our human frailty, one of the reasons that God, one of the ways that God makes room for that is that God, when he makes a a pretty epic covenant promise, he'll give us a physical sign of that promise. Right? So I always say God is a God of props. What, what that means is He uses physical reminders to remind us of spiritual reality that we can forget very easily. So, um, will God flood the earth again? No, why? We see a rainbow and we remember His promise. Right? For, for generations, God, the Jews would celebrate God's deliverance of them through the Exodus. Right? And so, they would have Passover. Every single year. Why? Because we're forgetful people. And they would remember God's mighty acts. We, we are forgetful people too. So, so God says, listen, you're going to forget that you are buried with Christ, you've died with Christ, and you've risen with Christ. So here is baptism. Communion's the same way. We are people who remember the things we're supposed to forget and forget the things we're supposed to remember. We're people who remember the things we should be forgetting. Right? I mean, the Scriptures say that God forgives sin and remembers it no more. That as far as the East is from the West is as far as we have been separated from our sin. That there is no condemnation 
for those in Christ Jesus. And we all know that. And yet, we walk into this place remembering. Remembering our shame, our guilt, our failure, our screw-up, our brokenness, our weakness. I mean, we all came trucking in here this morning with loads of baggage. And that's what we want to remember. But the Scriptures say that's precisely what we should be forgetting. And so we're people that remember what we should forget, but we forget what we should remember. I mean, why do we take the bread and the cup? I mean, in a world where human beings try to find their identity in anything other than their image-bearingness, we come to the table to take the bread and the cup to be reminded that we've been bought with a price. That we're of unsurpassable worth because God Himself became sin so that we might share in the righteousness of Christ. Like, that's just not empty religious cliché, brothers and sisters. That is a deep reality that we forget when we walk out those doors, right? Because we're living in an identity that's so much different than that. I live as a son, as a husband, as a father. I live in some ways as a failure. I live in some ways as somebody who wrestles with sin. I know it will shock you. I live in a million other identities. And so when I come, what do I need to remember? I take the bread and I remember He came in the flesh. He's not unsympathetic to our weakness. He knows hunger and thirst. He knows betrayal and disappointment. He knows what it is to suffer. So I take the bread and remember. And I take the cup because I forget I'm actually forgiven. I forget I actually that there is not one thing I can do to have God love me more. I forget that. I forget that His love of me isn't contingent upon my performance. I forget. So we take the cup. Because the cup says the finished work of Jesus of Nazareth means there is no sacrifice to be made by you and me. It, as Jesus says, is finished. And so brothers and sisters, how do you keep the, first of, the thing of first importance of first importance? We remember that there's no other identity that's as important as you being a son or daughter of God, period. And that there is no other truth about you that's more important than being redeemed by Jesus. And we remember. See, we gather. The reason it's so important, the Scriptures talk about gathering together regularly, is because we're just great at forgetting. And so we gather to be reminded that there was a fixed point back here where God took care of our sin and defeated death. And there's a fixed point coming when Jesus will return and put everything right. And we live in the in-between time. And as forgetful people, it is critical we come to remember again and again and again and again. And if you're here and you're not a huge fan of church or you're not a huge fan of Jesus, let me just say I'm sorry for the ways in which we make it, we the church make it about anything other than this. See, Jesus didn't give us hoops to jump through, a religious ladder to climb, or a whole bunch of systematic theology. What Jesus gave us is His body broken and His blood shed. That's what He gave us. And that is the gospel. We're to gospel. 
That's it. I mean, we have the most privileged job in the world, which is to embody and announce the fact that in Messiah Jesus, God is reconciling the world to Himself. And there is nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it except receive it when it's offered to you. That's it. I mean, not only does, is this the centerpiece of what we believe, but it's the centerpiece of how now we are to live. That we're to become a people broken and poured out for the sake of others. That we become little bitty announcers of this good news that says that Messiah has come and He has come to love us into His kingdom. Where, as we were it would have been completely justifiable for Him to give us wrath. He instead demonstrated love. My whole life changed. People ask me, uh, when did I start following Jesus? And I never know how to say that because I accepted Jesus before I started following Him. Does that make sense? Somebody said, hey, you want to go to hell? No. Pray a prayer. Okay. Awesome. But that's following Jesus a bit more than that. Would you agree? And, and, and so I had gotten into vocational ministry. I, had, uh, I was going to seminary. Uh, I actually worked here for a couple of years in sports ministries in the gym that still smells the same as when it did when I was here. And, and, and I found myself as a college pastor at Mariner's Church. And doing all the stuff, man. Seminary, I'm a pastor. I'm thinking I got it. And we go to a retreat, college briefing, at Forest Home. And I, I went as a college pastor. We had about 30 or 40 college kids. And I thought, you know, my job here is to really pour into these kids. There was a speaker there named Bart Tarman. Bart was a guy who, he was a chaplain at Westmont College. Westmont College is a Christian college. So Bart was the chaplain of the school. He got up and he said, you know, and he's telling this story. He says, I, I had some guys, five guys approach me recently about being mentored by him. And he said, because these were good guys, he was a little hard on them. Not to be mean, but just, you know, to see if they really wanted to be mentored by him or not. He said, let me ask you a question. Bart is saying this to the five guys. He says, how many of you have ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Not for class, because it's a Christian school, you did that. But just because you were compelled by the person of Jesus. Now, the whole 1,200 college students and yours truly just it got real quiet at that moment. And Bart said, these guys admitted they never had. And so Bart grabbed his Bible and he said, so let me get this straight. You sing, you've probably sung hundreds if not thousands of choruses to Jesus. You've given your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You, you, you sing to Jesus, you pray in Jesus' name, you share Jesus, you serve Jesus. He's the center of your life. And you've never seen fit to read one of the only four authoritative accounts we have of his life. And the first three are a lot alike. So let's just count Luke and John for a second. And he holds up just Luke and John. 
And he says, you've never been interested enough in this Jesus you supposedly worship. To read that. Now, Bart goes on to tell another story. I sat there and realized I was that guy. All the stuff I was doing in Jesus' name, I'd somehow missed Jesus. And so I began to do something that I probably should have done right away. I started reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Repeat, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Repeat, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Repeat, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't have a Bible reading program, may I suggest one to you? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Repeat, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Repeat. Spend a year and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then repeat. Just do that. And at the end of that year, Jesus will be bigger, you will be smaller, and you'll be different. And then you'll understand what Paul means when he says there's only thing, there's only one thing of first importance, and that is Jesus. And there's only one thing that Jesus commands us we remember. There's lots of other things, but this one he gave us a physical reminder of. And so we take the body, we take the blood, the bread, the cup, as people who need reminding, as people who find themselves in the in-between time, who are defined by lots of other stories and diagnoses and unemployment, by lots of other crazy things going on. This, this is what defines us because it's what Jesus did. So I want to invite our crew to come down and to hand out the elements. What we're going to do is we're going to pass them down the roads. If you are a follower of Jesus, would you take a, uh, some of the bread and would you take one of the cups and would you hold on to them so we could take them together? If you're somebody who's not comfortable doing that or you're not a follower of Jesus, that's just fine. Let that go right by you. No one's going to count the cups at the end of the row. Okay? No, it's just we're thrilled you're here. But you can just get to watch us be family together. But hold the elements, if you would. We're going to worship for a bit while these get handed out. And then what we'll do this morning is we will remember ourselves. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are forgetful people. We are people, Lord, that need so desperately to be reminded of how big and good and loving You are. We need to be reminded that You care about the little things. At the same time, You are at work in redeeming human history and putting all things under Your feet. We are people, Lord, who need to be reminded that You are good and You have good things for us. And we recognize, God, Your presence even in our suffering. And so, God, we take this bread, we hold on to this cup to remember this morning. So, Holy Spirit, would You stir in our hearts to seal the things You want us to remember and to forget the things You want us to forget. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, Amen. So go ahead, if you'd hand these out and hold on to them, we'll celebrate in a moment.